Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday the 10th of June. We're on Triple I every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, Adam Christou joined us for Game Changers, talking about Card Shark. We also talk about the perils of dropping your phone in an unclean place. Uh, and Michael Harden was here for Food Interlude, getting a little bit excited early for National Vegemite Day, which is coming up on the 15th of June. Ahoy! Robin Anir <laughs> joins us to chat about Sunday telephoning uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, forgetting important things when going places. That's been renamed the Daniel Tax. Johnny Hawkins, uh, creator and star of Rising Show. Maureen, harbinger of death, comes in to talk about their show. Uh, but we start the week talking about friends with pools and what to expect from your community. Triple R. I was reading an article this morning about an older couple that purchased a house in England and the house has a pool uh, and the previous owners had young kids and so their pool was kind of like a community pool within the neighbourhood. So the older couple have moved in uh, and they've had neighbours come up to them multiple times asking if they can use the pool Uh, (laughs) and they had said no. They said they're very private people, we don't want to allow people to come in uh, and they've constantly been told by three different homes like surrounding them uh, that the previous owners always let us in you know they let our kids they'll just leave the gate open you don't have to be home we won't bother you just and we're happy to pay maintenance uh, for the pool that's an arrangement that we had with the previous owners and these owners are like no no, we, we're private people. We, we don't want people coming in. It's our home. And accessing our pool, right? Now, they've had, pe- they've had their own friends over for dinner and occasionally they've had people using the pool. The neighbours have gone so far as to heckle over the fence going, must be nice, get invited to have a swim. Like, <gasps> these neighbours won't let up. Uh, and this, uh, the owners have uh, posted on social media just their frustrations with the, uh, with the neighbours and just saying that they, they won't take no for an answer. I get that, you know, when the owners had moved out, the neighbours would have been spewing. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, mm-hmm. no, we've had access to this pool. It's been great for our kids. Yeah. But the audacity, I think, how cringeworthy to constantly ask. As soon as they say no, I mean, I, I probably wouldn't ask anyway. If I had kids... And they wanted it. I, I, I don't know. W- would you ask a stranger? a stranger? Absolutely not. Right. I know. No, never. Never. It is so rude. It is so rude. Is but, there not a public pool in the neighbourhood, I assume? Oh, uh, look, I'm sure there might be one that they have. They could drive to, but this is so convenient for the neighbours and they've all got kids and they have just been accessing it for so long that now they're used to it and they think that they... Uh, are entitled. entitled to it. It's a bit of a poison chalice, isn't it, buying that house, thinking, great, going to buy a house with a pool and then not having no idea. Like so like how you buy, a, if you buy or move into a place, you never know who your neighbours are. Like you mm. just can't. That's a big, that should should have been on the ad. Yes. <laughs> it's your pool, but actually it's everyone's. It's a yeah. community pool, just so you know. But like if, I don't know, this is a terrible reference, but if like the Kellys move out of the house on Hey Dad and Nudge keeps showing up. <laughs> he, yeah, he's like, hey, nu- we don't know you, Nudge. <laughs> <laughs> the show's over. Oh. Get your chocolate milk somewhere else. Or whatever the hell you're doing here. Yeah, I, I'm, I admire the audacity, but let's, you know, let's draw a line under this now. Definitely. Like yeah, you had a good run. Yeah, exactly. You had a good run sometimes. Yeah, you, exactly. You had a good run. Just 
It's, it's like careers or sporting teams. You had a good run. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Reflect yeah. on it. Enjoy it. Retire. Retire. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, the kids in this neighbourhood need to get over it. Yeah, definitely. Is the it the kids are, or, or is it the, the parents? parents that are asking? But the parents are asking for the kids, I guess. Mm. Well, maybe for themselves as well. Like it said that they used to go there on weekends and if they wanted to have um, beach parties – the, the previous owners would let them. They just had to let them know when they wanted to have it. It's like, I don't think so. Um, I remember growing up and there was a girl in my high school who had a pool. I'll tell you what, she was the most popular person in summer. Uh, How exciting. Uh, for me growing up, if someone had a pool, they were rich. So rich. Like, wow, look at you with your fancy pool and now you can handpick any friend that you want. <laughs> Bring them over. Uh, I just think it's, yeah. I, just, I mean, I, look, I had not Above ground pool, which I got picked on, I think, because it was like above ground, oh. it's not as cool or whatever. Mm, okay, yeah. But I, but I didn't. I don't know. I wasn't drowning in friends. I had a. We. I was very fortunate to grow up with a pool. Oh yes. Um, and a family. <laughs> grow up with a pool sounds like I'm living on my own. <laughs> it's raised by the pool. Um, but I. But it's it's a funny thing, like with schools, you know, your world is so small mm. that I was just that little bit further away from school and where all my friends lived, mm. that that trumped having a pool. So I was like, oh, we could go to your house, but we can walk home to so-and-so's house, whereas I had to get two trams to my house. Oh, okay. So it didn't, you know, I, look, I had I had heaps of friends. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Not because of the pool. But not because, we not also had proximity to a beach, so I think my oh. friendlessness... <laughs> Isn't as pure <laughs> and obviously to diagnose because yeah the pool was competing with the with the bay. Oh, of course, yeah. 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 Well, Thanks. yeah, that that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That That's it. There, yeah. That's quite <laughs> oh, we were in Adelaide uh, over Christmas and New Year's, and it was they had a really hot heat. What's the word? Heat wave. Heat wave. Thank you. Really hot heat. <laughs> uh, and it was this one particular day. It was it, like it was over thirty-five degrees for a, a number of days, and it was thirty-seven degrees this day. And Abby's dad has a swimming pool, uh, and her stepmom sent us a message saying, "Hey, you want to come over and have a swim in the pool?" We we're like, "Absolutely!" Uh, so we got our stuff and we went over there. And then the dad was there, and he said, "What are you guys doing here?" And we're like, "Oh." Tracy asked us if we want to come over for a swim. He's like, "Oh no, I just put chemicals in the pool." Can't, oh, the chemicals. Can't swim for twenty-four hours. We're like. Right. Have you spoken to your wife lately? Because <laughs> yeah. she invited us here for a swim. Yeah. We, um, we had family friends who lived very far, like absolute other side of town. But mum said so often it would kind of like this neighbourhood with it. Yes. They'll um, pop over, oh, we were just passing by and we happened to bring our floaties and our <laughs> bathers, wondering, oh, oh, has the, oh, it is a bit hot, isn't it? And we just always just happened to be in the neighbourhood and mum's like, yeah, come in, use the pool. Like, just, why don't we just arrange it? Like, <laughs> How embarrassing. These were the same family friends who um, we... They would always, like, they had three kids, we were three kids, and yeah. they were a little bit younger than us, and um, they would not leave our house unless mum gave them a treat. Like, they would cry and took oh. tantrums, and mum had to, like, throw them a packet of chips as they walked out the door, because they would, yeah. <gasps> what? I think she probably did it once. Oh, and, and then it was so just expected. I was like, then, where's my chips? Right. Oh, I'm saving those for recess. What are you doing? <laughs> and mum's mum had a couple of nudges on her hands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Nudge was popping around with his pool noodles. <laughs> <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R 
Chris Dew's here with a regular hit of gaming gossip. Morning, Chris Dew. Good morning. Now, what are you playing here? Well, I thought instead of jumping into what I've been playing straight away, how good is everyone with card games here? Like, oh, I always wish I was better. And I forget the rules every time I'm taught. Yeah. I do love card games. Like when you games, travel and you fun. get yeah. a pack of cards and then oh. you're like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to play anything. <laughs> I'm the same. It's like I, Uno's a good, like, yep. you know, lean back on because it seems like the universal game that everyone learns at some point with their cousins who then cheat. <laughs> yes. Um, which, which sort of takes me to the game that I've been playing, which is, which is a game called Card Shark. It's, it's a narrative adventure game set in, the eight, in 18th century France, and it's all about learning how to cheat with cards. <laughs> um, so it's out now on Nintendo Switch and PC. It's been published by Devolver Digital, and it's by a developer called Nerial, which is a UK-based independent game studio. has a very gorgeous sort of like Renaissance fair, sort of like Baroque art style. I don't really know if anyone remembers the Renaissance memes that were all over the internet. Oh, yes. Mm. Kind of look Looks like that come to life in a bit of a way. It's very cute and adorable. The soundtrack is all Baroque music. Um, and you play as a young tavern worker who I think is born mute and might have epilepsy because there's there's like plot elements that reference you having um, seizures at points. Um, and you find yourself drawn into the world of card tricks, manipulation and fleecing people um, after an event that happens at the tavern that you work at where actual historical figure, the Count of St. Germain, who, if you've ever Googled, apparently is in a million conspiracy theories for being a mortal. Um, oh. YouTube is obsessed with this guy apparently still being alive, even though he was born in the 1700s. <laughs> um, essentially, he's at the tavern having a drink and you go to serve him and he's like, all right, I'm going to play some cards and I need you to get in on my swindle here and help me win. Um, so the Count of St. Germain becomes your sort of companion and also mentor in the world of swindling people in cards. It starts off with a very basic trick. He's kind of like, right, here's how we're going to do it. You're going to pour drinks for my opponent and you're going to look at his hand and then you're going to wipe the table using a particular symbol. And then I will see the way that you're wiping the table and I will know how many like cards he's got of a particular suit and which is the strongest suit in his hand. So that's that's the basic grift that the, the count kind of gives you. And so the way that this plays out in the game is that you use the controller, the gamepad that you're using to kind of do these actions. Um, so to pour the drink, you have to delicately like nudge the analog stick in the right direction to kind of tip the bottle over to pour the wine. Um, if you push the analog stick too fast, you're gonna pour that wine out really quickly. You might overflow the glass. You won't have enough time to see the hand of cards. So you've got to find the right pour time so that you can then see the cards come up on the screen, quickly memorize them using your brain, um, and then get ready to swipe the table in the right way. The count gives you th like directions on how to swipe the table. It's like, you know, rub it count clockwise to tell me it's hearts. Rub it counterclockwise if it's spades or whatever. Up and down means like the other one. You know, basic, <laughs> basic like you know, grifting techniques. And so, it's not easy to like pour this glass of wine and then be like, I've got three seconds before this glass fills to look at this hand, and then I have to remember which of those four symbols is the one that I have to wipe on this table. Otherwise, shit's going bad. Um, so that's the tutorial for this game. The very basic beginning thing. It's all very like patting your head and rubbing your belly sort of energy, um, which I am 
uniquely bad at. <laughs> uh, I managed to somehow get through that, but we still got busted because there's kind of like a timer element that kind of comes into play. Depending on how long you take to do these actions as you're trying to grift people, people get more suspicious. And if they get super suspicious, things get deadly. Knives come out, Ooh. fights happen, bar fights happen. Essentially what happens after this tutorial is the person that you're fleecing pulls out a gun, shoots the tavern mistress and tries to frame you for the murder. So you end up on the lamb with the Count St. Germain and hiding in a gypsy uh, kind of village that's moving around um, who take you in and teach you more card tricks so you can swindle more people. Um, so you start learning a whole variety of real swindling techniques in cards. So if you're curious about how to actually do card tricks and swindle people, this is a fun game that will teach you the basics and then sort of like um, abstract them into really weird controller systems that you have to memorize and learn so that you can pull them off in real time in the game. Um, very early on, you learn that basic card trick where someone's like, pick one of these five cards. Now put it here and I'll shuffle the deck. Ooh, is this your card? I'm sure you've seen like a magician somewhere around Flinders mm. do that to you once. Um, you learn that off one of the gypsies called the magician who teaches you a whole bunch of card games. Um, and that is all based around teaching you how to shuffle the deck in a way that you can actually leave a marker in the deck so that you know where to cut it, mm. so that you can manipulate where cards start at the beginning of the deck. Things start getting more complicated when you decide to go visit a tavern in Toulouse and end up in card matches against uh, a philosopher Voltaire, uh, who wants you to cheat because he's just a whimsical philosopher and he enjoys <laughs> it. Um, and you have to start doing counting and memorization techniques to kind of manipulate the shuffle and the drawer of the deck. Um, there was one um, technique which I got really trapped on um, and it involved the wine pouring came back, which first of all, I was like, I don't wanna do the wine pouring again, but here it is. And so the basic grift was that the Count Germain was basically like, all right, here's how we're gonna do this. Um, you're gonna get up, pull wine. I'm gonna give you an extra deck of cards and sneak it into your pocket. Then you're gonna come up with an excuse to get away from the table, go over there. I want you to open up the deck of cards and create a hand for me that's gonna be really favorable and give everyone else bad cards. Um, so then you have to do that. Then you come back and then you offer to like split the deck at the table, sneaking in and palming in the new deck of cards on top. Um, sounds easy. The next step is then you have to get up from the table, pour more wine again and then take out the duplicate cards that you just put in to the other deck so that people don't realize that they've got two of the same cards and a fight breaks out. Um, and to remember what I had just pulled out of the deck five minutes ago when I'm like in the corner, like going through the deck, not easy. Turns out I have no short-term memory. I'm a yeah, goldfish. Yeah, right. It's like a memory game. It's like that, the, you know, the matching the cards. Yeah, game. and it turns out I can't do that at all. <laughs> like years of social media, Twitter, Facebook have eroded my short-term memory. I'm just sitting there being like, I don't remember what I took out. Yeah. I don't know what I did. It doesn't sound like you can phone this game in or there's no muscle memory here. There is a narrative difficulty, um, but it still requires you to at least successfully do it once. And it slows down the timer of suspicion when people are waiting for you to like pull off tricks. Um, and I definitely had to swap down to that difficulty more than once because I just kept like losing. And if you keep losing, you lose your pool of money. And then you have to go to like a small little village and start playing like, you know, real basic thrift games with people to kind of swindle money. If that goes wrong, they'll just stab you. You die. You end up in the afterlife and have to either trick the devil with a card game or the devil will decide that you die and you have to restart from scratch. So mm. there's a bit of stakes in here. 
as well. The story is really fun and quirky. You actually do learn a lot about the art of thrifting people with cards, but boy, have a pen and paper if you have real bad short-term memory like I do now that's atrophied from <laughs> years of just mobile phone use and whatever, um, and start writing down the rules and techniques as you're going. You can kind of like review them slightly, but I feel like the game deliberately makes its review notes really subtle. You really have to be paying attention and you actually have to learn how to master these techniques. Sure, you're not pulling them off with an actual card deck and you're using button presses and manipulations of the controller to do it, but you still have to learn what these techniques are, how to count the cards, how to pay attention to suits. Um, and then you have to actually implement them really fast or people are going to be suspicious because you'll be just sitting there shuffling a deck for 10 minutes. Mm. Um, it's, it's actually really cool. Does it convey the tension? Yes, really mm. well. Like when you see that meter starting to creep up and people are like, mm, what's taking you so long to shuffle this basic deck? You should be done. Uh, <laughs> you're kind of like, oh man, I'm going to get knifed in this tavern really quickly. I would absolutely uh, drop all the cards. Yeah. Chip myself and then walk out. I'm, I'm getting a panic attack. Too stressful. It's, it's definitely got that energy. I love some of the names for the various techniques. I don't know if these are the actual correct names or if they had fun naming them up, but there was one called Eloquent Fingers, which is really cool. And the idea is like uh, the, the Count St. Germain is on the other side of the desk and he's, he's dealing out the deck. And he's kind of showing you what cards he's giving by gently lifting them up slightly to the opponent. And what you have to do is then single signal with your pinky fingers, with the way that you're holding your cards, what suit is being sent over. <gasps> and then you have to drop the card on the desk with your hand in a certain way. So you might drop it really high up or you might place it gently or you might throw it down to kind of suggest like the, the highest card in that suit. Um, so you're kind of sending signals with your hands and fingers to to let the count know what's in the hand of the other player's Beautiful. card, which is really cool. Did you as eventually well. scan Voltaire? I did. It took several attempts and a visit to hell, but I got there. Yay. And can I just note that Voltaire is like one of the third challenges. It's really early on in the game, so I just feel like I've just been like eating crap the whole yeah. time. Right. Like just miserable time. I'm absolutely abysmal at this game, but it's so kind of fun and whimsical and actually teaches you all these techniques that mm. it's I just find myself like dipping into it for 20 30 minutes here and there and persisting. Dead set card shark. Where is it? It's out now on Switch and it's also on PC so you can grab it on Steam or Epic or a bunch of other marketplaces out there. No um, offense, I'm just going to put my wallet away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um it's really fun. You should check it out. Excellent. Thanks Adam. Triple R. Last week, I was talking about when I was living in Blackwood, we used to have an outdoor toilet mm. uh, and uh, it was one of those, there was no flush. It was a, a drop toilet. So um, pretty gross. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this, uh, this woman in America, she was walking in a national park in Seattle, uh, halfway through the walk at the top of one of the mountains, she went to go to the bathroom uh, and it was a, a similar toilet. So it was called a vault toilet uh, and she dropped her phone. Oh, no, 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 no. In the toilet. No. So a vault toilet is a non-flush toilet, which is constructed with a vault or sealed container that is buried deep into the ground. So the toilet seat is all connected to the um, the, the box that she's sitting on, I guess. Uh, she's. It, I'll tell you what, if I dropped my phone in that in a national park, so community members are using this, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm out. Absolutely. I, I'm, it's very I'm, sad, but that's just what happened. Well, this woman didn't think so. <laughs> so she was with her dog and she took the lead off her dog uh, and she tried to use that. Uh, she pulled the toilet seat off uh, and tried to get the phone with that, but she couldn't get it because it was 
too deep. Like this was a very deep toilet hole. So she thought that she could Mm-mm. strap herself <laughs> to part of the outdoor toilet uh, construction, so the shed, uh, and then abseil yeah. down. Like a Mission Impossible <laughs> from the ceiling. Of course, this didn't work out for her. And she fell in <gasps> head first. It, that's how big this thing She's was. She's on her own. She's on her own. Well, oh. her dog was well, there. Well, the dog can't help her. No, of course it can't help her. So she was on her own. <laughs> Thankfully, she found her phone so she could call 911. So she had to get... <laughs> oh, imagine if after all that she didn't even she did. I know. Oh, so uh, they came... Uh... The facial recognition didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> her face was smeared in strange shit. <laughs> No, 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 I hate this oh, story. I, had I know. So she, <laughs> thankfully, she she was reunited with her phone and she uh, she called nine one one. So that and they said, "This is too gross. We're not risking yeah. it." Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll take the dog though. Um, they they came and and they rescued her and they wanted her to seek medical help for being in human waste for the amount of time that she was. Do you know how long she was in there? No, it unfortunately didn't say, but she didn't wait around Mm. for any conversation or any help. She was just out of there and they tried to hold her, just like, we really think that you need to, and she was so embarrassed, she just, she left. Oh, no, get help. Yeah. Might have swallowed something. Oh, God. (laughs) Don't take your phone to the toilet. Like, set yourself a challenge. I just see the iPhone was invented. We're coming up on 15 years since the first invention of the iPhone. Yeah, seven or something? Yeah. Yeah. So now the idea of taking this device to a drop toilet, like, be with your own thoughts for 30 seconds. But presumably I have... So, like, she can't just leak it on her person when she's going to, you know, I assume. So I, I'm you saying. You think. I'm saying. I'm, I, I assume she wasn't. She was dangling it above the bowl because she was holding it. No, I thought it maybe. I have. My phone has fallen out of my back pocket. Back pocket, yes. Before. And do you know when this happened? On a plane. Oh. <laughs> I was on a flight from um, New York to San Fran on my on my own. And the plane hadn't left. Hadn't left yet mm. and I really had to wee and so I was like I'm gonna go to the toilet sorry for the detail I think it's important <laughs> that you knew I had to wee yes okay because where you. the story goes mm-hmm. um, anyway hadn't actually gone yet pulled pulled my pants down and then it fell into the plane toilet and everyone knows <gasps> the plane toilets are the scariest toilets in the world because they sound like they're going to disembowel you when yeah. you flush them <laughs> and I was like oh my god oh my god oh my god, oh god. um uh, and then also because I was traveling alone I was still going to be away for two weeks or something <sighs> needed my phone uh, I went to one of the, this is Delta Airlines, went to one of the flight attendants and said, uh, I'm so sorry, um, I, my, I just dropped my phone in the toilet. So you and couldn't she, see it? I could, uh, no, I couldn't see it. Okay, yep, yep. And so she just looked at me and went, ew. <laughs> Helpful. And I was like, mm. um, is there any way I can get it out? And she's like, ugh. I don't know. And then so she got um, – they have, like, waste, like, garbage bags. Oh. So she just did absolutely nothing to help me. So I got a garbage bag and, like, covered – put my arm in it, covered my entire arm and just – Put your hand yeah, in? Yeah, shoved my hand in, knowing that the, it hadn't – if it didn't flush it, it was okay. Yeah. And got my phone. Oh, wow. Or before the plane took off. And then I went to the toilet and I was like oh. – <laughs> oh, my God. It worked. It worked. Thankfully. No, I turned it on. That was the biggest mistake. Because if it's wet, you should leave it. You shouldn't turn it on. You should leave it to dry out in like a bag of rice or something. But I just wanted to see that it still worked. Turned it on, it did. And then it was stuffed. So for the whole last week and a half of my trip, 
I had no phone and I had to use like internet cafes in 2012. Internet cafes. God, yeah. I remember them. But what a, I was so proud of myself that I didn't get sucked into the airplane toilet. Yeah. Well, Jeremy so. Piven, I remember, dropped his phone in a toilet. I don't know why he broadcasts online, but um, <laughs> and then he made the staff fish it out at a sushi restaurant. <laughs> and then he got them to pack it in rice. Oh, oh well, then, well, at least I didn't have any rice in this plane. <laughs> no. <laughs> Or anyone to help you, apparently. Yes, stupid. (laughs) Here's a a plastic bag. (laughs) I I get that, though, because I have done that when I have gone to go to the bathroom and then heard my phone Mm. drop out. I reckon I've done that half a dozen times. (gasps) Not recently, because I've done it so stupidly so many times prior. Um, But every time, and it it has never gone in, but it has gone so close, so, like, it'll drop and then kind of... the ground. Yeah, just onto the ground. I'm just like, oh, jeez, don't do that again. Mm. Uh, But I did it multiple times. Uh, I remember losing a phone years ago and... I, I'm like, I swear it was in my handbag. And after three days, I finally just bought another phone and then I found it on the inside, on the lining. There was a hole in my handbag that, and there was lining and it was it was inside there. I mean, I checked my bag. It was but stupid. you would have, couldn't you have felt it or the weight of Many times, Mon, <laughs> many times. But so, stupidly, I'm just like, well, I don't want to buy a new phone. It's here, it's here. In the future, what will you do? I mean, here's what I would do. Obviously not. You could get no one to call you like it was off. Oh, it was off. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Oh, that's because my phone's always on silent. Yeah, exactly. uh, But rolling up your bag. Oh, yeah. I mean. uh, Or you make it really small so you could see if there's anything in there. Yeah, I mean, it was a chunky leather kind of a bag that had so many compartments. I did. I don't know. It was just stupid. Do do you know what? When we were talking about passports earlier, uh, Craig called up and told us told a story just to me because I answered. But similar that he and his partner had gone to Bali for a holiday, came back and they always put the passports in the same box. Mm. And he was flying to Fiji a few weeks later for work. And he went to get ready for his trip. Passports not in the box. Looked everywhere. For it, could not find it anywhere. It was like it's lost. Passports are lost. Couldn't go overseas for work. <gasps> no. Um, and then found it to like two days after he was meant to fly in a bag they'd taken on holiday and just not unpacked properly and left it in there. And then anyway, so always put it back in the same pot. Always put it back. It's just sitting in a bag. Things get lost in bags. Who would have thought? Guy lost his phone Bloody not bags. long ago and asked me if I could call it or something. Anyway, what ended up happening is he asked for my phone. And then he said, can I sign in to my... Mm-mm. Oh. Like, it, that's um, a the bit. requests kept coming. And mm. I eventually I said, look, I'm going to say no. I want to. But when I tell the police what happened, they're going <laughs> to laugh at me for being so gullible. So this is this a stranger? Yeah, stranger. Oh, no way. And it was like, yeah, I understand. So, like, you know, we were discussing how dumb I would be to do it. <laughs> And yet I felt, still felt so bad. Yeah. Uh, but let's say if you lose your phone, people take it personally. I, it becomes an event. You say, I can't find my phone. It becomes everyone else's problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Why can't you find your phone? I'll help you find it. Yeah. Oh, it's such a – and so in Hacks, she has a dumb phone because she sends out a tweet or whatever that ruins her career. Oh, so, mm. oh, so she doesn't have internet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, right. Um, and that's the future, everybody. Just dumb phones. Well, someone there's a very funny pun. <laughs> someone texted him because he talked about dropping your phone in the toilet. Mm. Said you could use fecal recognition. Ah! <laughs> oh, it nice. has to be acknowledged. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so I just I can't I can't end on a, that note. It's too disgusting. I'm sorry. Yeah. Help me out. No, okay. I'm just. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> 
I have recently lost my phone, um, and not recent, but it's really annoying because you lose your wallet and you lose everything. Yes. So like paying for things, I I never take my wallet anywhere anymore. You just pay on your phone. I pay everything on my phone. Not Daniel though. Not yeah. Daniel. Old cash bird over That's here. It. Yeah, cash all the way, baby. <laughs> That's the thing. I wonder how she got um, back up out of the drop toilet. Yeah, Maybe. did I, I have mean, to hoist she, her? She, uh, she, hopefully she used a stool. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fine. Oh, God, no. Fine. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Here for his highly anticipated food interlude, we're joined by happy little food writer Michael Harden. Good morning. Oh, look, good morning. I'm just so jumping out of my skin because yeah. it's, you know, it's almost National Vegemite Day. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, so I guess most houses in Australia at the moment have got their uh, Vegemite branded bunting up. Oh, and, that's uh, right. You know, because it's really, it's really taken on this day. But uh, I thought that seeing that it was, it's next week, so you've got time yeah. to... Uh, to decorate the house and to get the recipes in. So, uh, but I thought we could talk a little bit about Vegemite. It is quite a sort of, you know, one of the few sort of really iconic um, Australian foods and stuff. And I think I think there's something great about it that it's this sort of like extremely ugly kind of divisive, you know, kind of um, product that's sort of made from, you know, the waste products of beer. So, mm. you know, it kind of like, you know, that's it. And it was sort of, it was invented, uh, it's sort of back in 1922. It was, um, it was sort of, there were other similar sort of spreads around at the time in Germany and in um, in Britain and sort of Marmite was the sort of main one and um, Australians used to eat Marmite. And then they decided that they there was a guy, uh, Fred Walker, his company became Kraft. And um, he decided that we needed to do something with the our own Brewer's yeast waste, and um, and so we got this guy called uh, Cyril Callister, who was a food biologist and uh, um, technologist, to try and find the way to make Vegemite. And so he got this, and he sort of like he, he it's this process um, called autolysis, which is um, which is known it's like known to the to the experts like me as um, self digestion. Which sounds lovely. So um, <laughs> it's the enzymes in the brewers' lease. It's kind of eat each other mm. and turn it. So it's sort of like this self-consuming thing, and then it turns into this clear liquid, and then they mix it with salt and celery and a bunch of onion extracts and everything to sort of bring it back up to thing. Nobody actually really knows the secret of the. It's like you know, Kentucky yeah, Fried Chicken, herbs and spices, spices yeah. sort of thing. It's sort of like nobody knows the exact recipe but it's sort of like but they, they did that but it, it was not an overnight success it took like they, they really had to plug at it for it was sort of 17 18 years before people started to buy it and it was they, they the reason that they started making in the first place because there was a shortage of marmite because of world war one um so there was the, the disruption to the shipping and all of that sort of stuff and so they thought they'd, they'd do that and so they they made this new spread and then they had a national competition for the name and uh you know there was prizes for the name but in the end they decided not to use the name that won the prize, but um, Fred Walker's daughter um, got, oh. the, got the uh, got the thing. Do you so know the name? Yeah. Sorry, no, nobody knows. Oh. It's been lost to the, lost to the mist of time. And was so. the, is the veggie? A product of the celery and the onion. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, they're sort of like they were trying to do that, but then that didn't catch on. They tried to do. They tried to catch it on. Made it make it catch on. They uh, gave away, um, you know, jars of it and stuff. And then they then they thought, okay, well that's not going to work. Vegemite's not going to work. So the best thing we can do is change its name. And they changed the name to Parwill. Oh. So as opposite to Marmite, 
it's par will. So that was their, their oh. advertising oh, genius. Terrible. So bad. And surprisingly, didn't take off. <laughs> yeah. People didn't like it. What about ice snack? <laughs> oh, 2.0. That's right. So it's more than National Vegemite Week. We're coming up to the centenary. Years. Yeah, yeah, next year. Hundred years, so it's and it's been made in um, it's been made in Port Melbourne, or you know more now it's been redesignated as Fisherman's Bend um, the whole time. And interestingly enough, just recently the scent of Vegemite um, in Fisherman's Bend has been given um, heritage listing. Is that for real? Yeah, yeah. How do so you it's do sort that? of this. It's the, it's a new field of olfactory heritage. It's only been granted once before in the world, and that's to a perfume making region of France. So UNESCO gave them an olfactory heritage in I think it was 2018, first one ever. So it's like they've been granted heritage. So they don't actually have to keep the smell going, but it has to be acknowledged as a significant part of the region's history. Right. So that wafting smell of Vegemite cooking mm. in the breeze. Because oh, make it sound so nice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got lost driving and gone along Vegemite Way. I think the factory is on Vegemite Way. Well, yeah, yeah, just recently. <laughs> um, yeah. So cute. Right. <laughs> uh, but then there's nothing going on. It, for a city or country that's allegedly proud of Vegemite. Yeah. There's not like him. There should be like a big silo. Yeah. Mm. Well, like we do have National Vegemite Day. Obviously. Yes, we do have that. And the bunting and all and the rest of it. And we celebrate it. Exactly. With pride, the, parade, the ticker tape parade. Yeah. You know, it's the <laughs> Are you personally a Vegemite consumer? Yes. I am. There's. Yeah. Uh, I'm one of the. I'm one of the people that like. There are 22 million jars of Vegemite sold every year. <gasps> um, so it's pretty. It's a pretty major product. There's been. It was the the billionth jar was um, sold in 2008. So right. it's been going for quite some time. Is it, where is it popular? It's. Of all these spreads, there's spreads in there's a similar one in Germany and there's there's you know Marmite and all of those sort of things, but they, they take them as a whole. Eighty five percent of all of those spreads sold every year um, are consumed by Australians. Mm-hmm. Wow. So yeah, so it's sort of it's we've really I believe that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and with a Vegemite Day and I nothing goes with Vegemite. Is it just a bread thing or can you does it's it go in, in any ingredient? Yeah, there's plenty. It's good. It's actually I think that it, it is there is sort of room for us to make it more than just the spread on toast because I'm, I'm kind of like I don't really do Vegemite sandwiches because I feel that like you need a bit of heat in mm. order to melt the butter nice in, you know, in order to sort of let, it, that's the mm. whole thing of like it's like a chemical reaction Absolutely. almost that it's sort of like that's the way to do it like on bread it just sort of it just keeps Sits. that sort of greasy axle grease kind of paste mm. texture yeah. um, I'm not sitting with that kid <laughs> lunch. I had a Vegemite sandwich yesterday. Literally just yesterday. Yeah, it's the first time in a while, but it was bloody beautiful. You know what mm. my dad used to do? He used to make uh, spaghetti bolognese, and he always oh. said he had a secret ingredient. Yes. And then we saw him one day putting the Vegemite, and Mum yelled at him like, "What the hell are you doing?" Yeah. But that was his secret. But the, it's a really good thing for that mm. sort of stuff. Like um, the uh, TV chef Adam Leor mm. uses a lot of Vegemite in various kind of like a miso. It's like, it's like a, it's like um, almost like a miso. Like it's can, you can use it the same as a miso. So you, it brings. So it's quite a harsh miso compared to sort of Japanese miso, but it's like it, it and it's a you know it's sort of quite salty, but it is really good. Like things like gravy, mm. because it's because it's also vegetarian, it's halal, it's kosher. 
So it can be used in every every sort of you know cuisine, but it's sort of like it's really good for gravy. You can make a vegetarian gravy for vegetables oh. and stuff with with a teaspoon of Vegemite with some vegetable stock and some salt and pepper. There's a couple of really great recipes online um, that you can do so for that sort of thing. So and it's also you know you can add add it to all different sort of like I I like to add it to um, like pasta sauces yeah. and stuff. Yeah, you know, it's sort of like because you get that salt element in it. But it's and, a bit more uh, umami than just straight salt yeah, or stock. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it sort of gives you a slightly different flavour to some something like soy sauce. But yeah. it's kind of sim- in that kind of area where you're adding a sodium element to the food. Do you know if Vegemite still use leftover stuff from, from beer yeah. production? So yeah. it's still oh, Yeah, well, so it's like, you know, the other thing, it's good for the environment. Yeah. It's using yeah. a waste <laughs> product. It's sort of like, you know, there, there's a lot of good things about Vegemite. You know, well, you know, and there's some other great, un, un, not great things, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it's banned in it's been banned in Victorian prisons since 2007 because they thought that the prisoners were using it to brew booze in the like oh. brew alcohol because of the because there's yeasts in oh, the, like going in full the circle. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, wow. exactly. So it's uh, you know it's like it's a great you know turning turning circle as you say. It's sort of like you know starts off as beer, ends up as spread ends up as, you know, moonshine. So, <laughs> you know, which I think is sort of like a marketing opportunity that they've really missed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's so cruel. There's a few re- revolting... I mean, I don't eat Vegemite and I've, I'm ashamed that oh I don't God. eat it. I know because I think I should. This is two shocking things I've heard this morning. You don't like Vegemite. You've cancelled iceberg lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> I was never coming back. Yeah, this is um, it. This is my last show. Uh, I can't be in the room with these people anymore. But people are texting uh, pro Vegemite, but two people have said peanut butter and Vegemite sandwich, and some said peanut butter, Vegemite, and jam. Mm. Now, I obviously will never try that, but is that? Do you, are you a purist? Well, I think it sort of sounds initially revolting, but then you mm. sort of start thinking about, um, you know, salted caramel chocolate and nuts in chocolate yeah. and things like that. So it's that salty, sweet kind of thing. Because they've made – there's like a limited edition <gasps> Tim Tam going around at the moment that's got, that's got chocolate going through the middle of it that I have not tried because it's – It's got Vegemite kind of, in the middle. Yeah, it's got, a, it's got a, yeah. like a, a thin streak of Vegemite in the middle of a regular Tim Tam biscuit. And it's mm-hmm. supposed to be people that's not – it hasn't been widely condemned. All right. But uh, – uh, and you know. do we know where Kraft gets their beer? You know, where are they getting? It was originally from Carlton and United Breweries. That was the that was that was the original one. I think they still get some of it there. But I've but I've been trying to like track the source. But it's also Coopers in um, South Australia has also giving that that sort of their their waste product as well. So. Yeah. So Marmite. There was a shortage of Marmite this year because of the lockdowns because of, I think yeah. in South Africa in particular, yeah. oh. ban yeah. on alcohol production or less yeah. demand and so less yeah, Marmite. Yeah, so Vegemite can leap into the void. <laughs> so Once and for all, it's rightful places, number one black inky spread. So. <laughs> a- avocado is apparently essential as well. Oh, yeah, and, a lot, and a lot of love for cheese, cheesy taste. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, yeah, it's good for all, all of that stuff. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Vegemite and avocado together. Mm, yeah, that's really great. On toast. So. Yeah, listeners are big fans of Vegemite. <laughs> you really? More yeah. Yeah, I know. You'd sort of like, you know, you wouldn't want to you would want to diss it like an iceberg lettuce. <laughs> also, just quickly, yeah. I admire the jar. Yeah. Yeah. The branding is great. Mm. You know, so it's like it's it's I think that Glass. they've done a re- and it has sort of changed over the years, but generally that shape and those colours mm. and everything have always been really strong on there. So it's sort of like it's you know great graphic design and yeah. all those sort of things. Well, happy National Vegemite and Day. And to you all. <laughs> <laughs> Melbourne's own. Triple R. 
Author and historian Robin Anir joins us for Wednesday morning to wind the clock back on this day. Hi, Robin. Hello. Tell oh, it. you didn't say a whore. Anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say that. Didn't want to say that. I wanted to save it for a surprise. Okay, oh, okay, okay. I'll keep it a surprise. <laughs> uh, t- tell us, tell us what's caught your eye today. Well, on this day in 1901, um, the controversy was raging over the question of telephoning on Sundays. Uh, um, We recently had federation, of course, so all the colonies had come together in a nation and the National Postmaster General's Department was finding the female switchboard operators of Melbourne to be very recalcitrant when it came to the matter of working on a Sunday. Um, of all the capitals of Australia, uh, these were the, the, the telephone operators who, who said they felt the people shouldn't use the phone on Sundays except in emergencies, uh, and they were, as it was, they were just using it for silly and trifling um, reasons. And uh, the... The Sunday phones were being run in Melbourne by just uh, male technicians who were kind of subbing in on Sundays and uh, doing an extra day's work. And they needed an organised workforce of these expert operators. So the the switchboards were run weekdays by women. And this was because in the beginning, switchboards, telephone switchboards in the 1880s had been run mostly by young men and boys. They were cheap to employ, as women still were. And... um, but the, but the boys were very, you might not be surprised to hear, were very mischievous mm-hmm. and uh, and tormented the, te- the te- poor telephone subscribers as well as defacing the switchboards themselves so they were covered in gra- car with graffiti and so on. So women, women were cheap to employ. Uh, it was a bit controversial at first, but women became the standard switchboard operators. Also, they had very soft voices, it was said, compared to the boys and men. Um, and I think in some places they even... Uh, switchboards got bigger, uh, women... Uh, skated around on roller skates um, from to answer the, the calls from one end of the switchboard to the other. I've seen photos of this in New York City where they would have had the biggest switchboards. But you'd see the lights flashing at different ends of the switchboard and you'd skate down to the other end to answer them. Anyway, women were nimble, they were soft-voiced and they were cheap. Um, so they wanted to work on Sundays. And um, in Melbourne in particular, um, the um, Women's Christian Temperance Union was very strong and they were ding-dong about Sabbath breaking, as it was called, about anybody working on Saturdays unnecessarily, uh, especially women. They should be going to church on the Lord's Day. Um, so even though they would have only been required to work either in the morning or in the afternoon because men worked at night, um, uh, they, you know, they said they said no. They also, I might add, refused in Victoria to wear the uh, the telephone operator's headgear. You know, the little the little talking bit, the headpiece that you wore, because they said it messed up their hair. <laughs> and again, they were the only they were the only women uh, telephone operators in Australia who said this. So you know, we can be proud of this tradition. I think of this uh, recalcitrance <laughs> in the matter of uh, of telephoning. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of to and fro in the press and elsewhere about whether it was proper to use the telephone for other than emergencies on a Sunday. So what are some, what are some ways they would use it? Like calling their friends? I imagine that wasn't a thing then. 
Well, it was a thing, and this is what was objected to. And, of course, the, the telephone operators knew this because uh, knew that people were using it for these trivial, as they said, these trivial reasons, uh, because they listened, they could listen into any calls. You know, they had to, you had to ring the switchboard. The switchboard would then ring the person you wanted to speak to and then would connect the two of you. But basically, they could listen into the conversation. So they did quite often, I think, um, especially on a Sunday if, if they worked because there wasn't, wasn't quite so much happening. It was more expensive to ring on a Sunday. So, you know, if you wanted to chat with your friend, um, uh, you know, you were doing so at a premium. But, mm. yes, they said, look, really, it should just be kept for uh, sickness, criminal matters to report crimes, and perhaps a shipwreck might occur on the coast, they said, in which case the telephone could definitely be used, but, um, but not for um, unimportant reasons. Mm. And was there a um, limit of... A telephone calls that could be made was that a genuine concern or do you think it's a, it's a phony argument like you're talking about um, your Lamington recipe and meanwhile there's a shipwreck <laughs> <laughs> look there wasn't I mean there wasn't really sh- uh, more and more uh, people were subscribing as they said to telephones as the call as the cost of calls was getting cheaper um, and the technology was improving so the switchboards were capable of operating and on weekdays when businesses were running you know the big banks and insurance companies and in the city, all those city offices, uh, you know, they were flat out. So on a Sunday, uh, they were, you'd have been pretty much idling, but they were finding the Sunday telephone traffic was increasing and hence the need to get a, a regular workforce rather than just these uh, these sort of technicians who didn't know how to answer the phone properly and didn't have soft voices um, and couldn't roller skate, so um, <laughs> <laughs> presumably. So, um, uh, so, the, so the traffic was picking up, uh, but yeah, it would have been, it would have been a pretty easy shift still I think um, yeah and was this in the at the GPO um, no I think it was I think it was still in Collins Street there had been we'd started off with private telephone exchanges so it wasn't originally a government enterprise and then they were bought out the companies were bought out in the late 1880s by the, uh, the Victorian government and consolidated now as I say federation just happened and so probably um, a further consolidation of services was happening but it was either in Collins Street or perhaps it was in the process of moving down to Spencer Street where the, the old would you believe the GPO was opposite um, Spencer Street Station there. Uh, I, I think it was possibly happening there. And usually it happened like in the basement of somewhere. It was kind of an out-of-sight kind of thing and you wanted as much quiet as possible. Mm. So not too much tram noise, for instance. Um, yeah. Now, these days people get social anxiety answering telephones. A lot of people prefer to text. How was it at the start? <laughs> How was it at the start? In terms the of start. the habits that we've cultivated. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, at the start. Well, at the start you would answer the telephone quite differently uh, from how we would now. You'd say, ahoy, and in a really loud voice. So I don't know if the, I don't know if the loud voice was actually necessary or, you know, because the technology was crackly or I think it was more, I gather it was more to do with that people felt they had to throw their voices practically so they could across be heard town. without the telephone. <laughs> yep, cross town. Um, so, uh, so you would answer the phone by saying, ahoy, and it was an attention. So we're, we're back at shipwrecks, aren't we? It was an attention attention-gaining thing, um, and, and the technician would like it, um, and who in those days would have been a man because it was still seen as a very, it isn't very much a technician's job, um, would have would have shouted, he shouted 
Ahoy. So he kind of set the tone, apparently, was uh, was the male technician who'd answer, Ahoy, and you would respond, Ahoy. So it was a bit of a walkie-talkie kind of thing. Mm. You'd repeat one another. So there was loud talking. There was uh, there was Ahoy. Um, and, um, and in those days, uh, the telephone would have been one of those ones where you listen through a separate bit from what you talk through. So you'd be talking into a box on the wall, pretty much. Uh, you'd, you'd dial up, or not dial up, you'd... Uh, you'd crank up a kind of a ratchet to ring the exchange and then you'd talk into the the mouthpiece which was mounted on the wall but when the one piece uh, transmitter receiver came in which is like what we would have a landline now um, with talking at one end and uh, listening at the other they they were labeled uh, very boldly with the words don't talk with your ear or listen with your mouth um, so that you knew <laughs> that you had to there was a, there was a right and a wrong end for listening and talking my mum still actually needs that direction because she tends to uh, she tends to talk in the wrong end or even the TV remote she will sometimes pick up and talk into that so we could we could use that labeling still was there an average call time at the telephone exchange or was there a limit I don't think there was an average call time or limit, not from what I could tell, so long as you were prepared to pay and pay quite a quite a premium in the early days. So it would have been, you know, a rich man's sport talking on the on the phone for a long time about, you know, golf or something. Um, and I think I, I get the impression that sort of coming up to the turn of the century where, where the Sunday telephone furor was, uh, that women using the phone was um, for, for sort of chatting was, was a fairly new thing. In fact, perhaps anybody using the phone for chatting was, was a pretty new thing mm. so it had been seen as a tool of business hitherto and probably you know the uh, the using of the phone for chatting was being encouraged because they wanted to you know they wanted the money to keep on yeah. coming in and what, what, yeah. what about these days where it's you know i'm going on in a tunnel i'm dropping out i'm in an elevator there's no reception were there any <laughs> uh, common uh, traps or obstacles in making telephone calls back then look the only the only one i've been able to find really was uh, was of course a thunderstorm um, if there was a thunderstorm on, you know, you, you, originally you were warned, but then it became like, oh, that's just an old wives' tale that you should not use their phone during a thunderstorm. And so during the 1920s, there were you'd read things in the paper like this one, women's whim, fear of telephone in storm. <laughs> you know, when lightning flashes, the women give up chatting about gossip and uh, and they, they hide their telephones under under towels and things like this. And uh, and, and those, those silly women, there's not the slightest risk of them, uh, of them getting a shock from the telephone. Well, you go on the Bureau of Meteorology website today and you will find a thing saying, don't use your landline during a thunderstorm. You may be killed. Wow. So, uh, so I don't silly know ladies. Many... <laughs> yeah, I know. So how many heedless, heedless uh, stockbrokers were, um, were electrified um, <laughs> during thunderstorms on the phone? I do not know. But, uh, but it was put down as just a, a, silly, a silly superstition. And there was, interestingly, another modern superstition that was suggested uh, uh, around about nine, around, around about 1901, was that uh, we should introduce some 20th century superstitions. They said, for instance, if you are rung up 13 times on your telephone on a Sunday, you will die in a lunatic asylum. Oh, wow. uh, was a suggested was a suggested 20th century superstition. So you can see they were still really kind of discouraging, <laughs> uh, discouraging the Sunday telephoning as trivial. What an alarming niche! <laughs> I know, mate. <laughs> The 13th time you just don't answer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Amazing. I know, you'll get struck by lightning if you do. <laughs> so just to recap, on this day in 1901... 
On this day in 1901, there was um, there was an outrage over Sunday tel- over using the telephone on a Sunday yeah. for trivial reasons, unless it was a shipwreck. But in the end, they got they got their pay on Sundays. They did, yep, yep. They uh, that was really what they were holding out for, and they didn't have to wear the silly headgear. Uh, <laughs> they got ex- they got extra pay for working on a Sunday, and they all said, "Yeah, I'll do that." All right, well, <laughs> put out your roller skates in memory today, uh, Robin and Ian. Thanks so much. Thanks. See ya. Ah, that's right. Triple R. Abby went into work a couple of hours early yesterday. Supposed to start at nine, went in at seven. Finds that she's more productive for a couple of hours in the office when it's quiet and there's no one else around. Loves, you know, having a cup of tea socially and all that. Uh, but she got into the office and she realised when she got there that she'd forgot her laptop. So she had to drive back and she was driving into just in peak hour. Mm. So... Right, she ended up getting back to work just after eight, which was when everyone else was coming in. It was just, she had, she planned, you know, she meant well, and it just ended up being a bit of a shit show of morning, which was a very annoying for her. Um, a previous job that I was working in before here, uh, our boss wanted us, it was a corporate job and we were all based in an office in the city. Um, and it was during COVID, uh, but there were, the admin team, he wanted us all to come into the office. He's like, no, I, I want you to come in. We are the the minimum amount or the maximum amount of people that we can have into the office. I, I didn't mind. It was a new job for me. So I was like, yeah, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm happy to come into the office. Um, there was an other staff that were like, oh, I think I prefer to work from home. But he's like, no, you have to come into the office. And this one guy came in uh, and he travelled an hour and a half to get into work, literally walked in, sat down next to me and forgot his laptop um. and went, i I got to go home. It's like... Did you mean that? Mm. Like, did you want to come into work today? Did you deliberately do a three-hour round trip just to make a point <laughs> of not coming in to work and to work from home? Sure. Not. Uh, no. Well, I don't know. I mean, he he quit not long after that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he might have. Damn it. Yeah. But, but, yeah, so then he went home because it's like he just – you couldn't do any – you had to have your work laptop to be able to connect to the server and, and have all of your stuff. So so he went home. He's like, oh, you bloody – um, good on you. So, yeah, so he, he left home. Um, but other things, like when I've been to uh, to football, I've had people that have, when I used to play, teammates that would forget their footy boots. Oh. Like important things. Like you're going to work, you forget your laptop. You're going to football, you forget your football boots. It was amazing how many players forgot footy boots. So many players have spare football boots as well. Mm-hmm. So, like, you have the people that are so overly prepared and then people that just rock up and don't have footy boots. Are you one of the overly prepared ones? Overly prepared. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although, you know, I had a friend who was – I thought I was overly prepared. She had three bags when she would come to football. It was like she was going to the airport afterwards, but she never was. Uh, <laughs> she had her footy bag with her footy boots and she had multiple pairs. Um, and then she had another bag for her um, after-footy attire – so clothes oh, yeah. that she would wear afterwards. Uh, and then she had another bag that had her shoes. So she actually had, because she had multiple football boots and then she just had different options of shoes that she wanted to wear afterwards. We're just like, it's, it's football. We're going into the club rooms. I don't think you need anything other than jeans and a pair of runners and, and yeah. whatever. And your club top. Um, but no, she would have so many bags and so many different options, including a makeup bag. Oh anyway, man. yeah, no, she she Did she look it. great or just like everybody else? Well, we had to make comments, uh, otherwise she would just she'd be <laughs> devastated. It's like, oh, you look amazing, well done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm relieved to hear this because I get accused, it's now now household has the name of Daniel Tax. 
Like <laughs> the fact that Abby went in and then went back home and then had to come. That is a Daniel tax. Oh, right. Mm. Like it's, you're just paying the tax. Yeah. And sometimes other people have to pay the tax. Like you had to pay the tax yesterday when you lent me your charger. Mm. So Bobby yeah. paid the Daniel tax. Oh, okay. Mm. Oh, okay. So yeah. uh, Abby's, Abby's like... You got an Abby tax? <laughs> Maybe there's an Abby tax. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I like that Daniel tax. That's mm. a, oh, I think I'm going to use that from now on. Um, <laughs> I remember coming in here once and you actually didn't have a laptop for some reason, but you got through the... How on earth phone? did you get... Uh, phone and newspapers. Oh, right. But you managed to get through all well, of the Well, that's the thing. If everything. I've done... And now I'm beginning to believe that this chap... Yeah, deliberately sabotage his work day so he could leave yeah. in a pointed, passive-aggressive way. Yes. Uh, but you might do. Do you? Yeah, well, that's... As if there wouldn't have been something. Something he could do. Yeah. That, yeah. That workplace was, I mean, unless he did other helping with admins photocopying or something like that, perhaps. Um, like the work experience kid. Yeah. But all of the incoming issues and maintenance came through his computer and my computer. So it was just all coming through to me. It's, I feel like it is a, a flaw in this system. Like if you do forget it, it's like that's it. You just you you literally I, yeah. couldn't do anything. There's can't no other anything. way to log in except his computer, your laptop. Yeah, that's dumb. So he can't – there's not just like a desktop he could use. That's no. Silly. That's silly. I'm, it is. It's good he quit. And it's good you quit, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Well, I wish I did. Oh. <laughs> they can't equip me. But anyway um, – <laughs> I, I used to run uh, comedy nights and so I would co- come to the venues and I would bring the spotlights, speakers, stands, microphones, everything. And the one thing that I would always forget would be the ox cord, the auxiliary cord. Oh. And thankfully that's something that you can buy at a service station. Yes. So I own a dozen ox cords. <laughs> yeah. Because that was always something that I'm just like, oh, God, I just, I was like, I can't forget the spotlights, can't forget the microphones, can't forget the speakers, but just that little tiny cord. Yeah. And every time, I swear I put it in a microphone um, bag and then I'll find it after I've purchased another one. I just, mm. I just could never find it. I bought it, I was at the airport. When you're buying electronic goods at the airport, <laughs> you're, that's a Daniel tax. Yeah, that's yes. big time. Yeah. Charges, cords, converters. And they can mark you up, they know. Oh, yeah. They I mean, when you're past way. security, like when you're in, like, outside gate 46. Oh, yeah. Um, the markup is, like, it's comical. Oh, it's insane, isn't it? Yeah. Just buy a new laptop. This guy actually felt so, so sorry for me. He was like, I think there might be a cheaper one. Oh, oh right. Yeah, but there wasn't. It'll explode on the flight, but it's... <laughs> it's cheaper. Because what I'm doing to you now is, like, kind of criminal. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, like, buying electronic... But that's the thing. You know, when you forget something, you just make do. That's mm. always the – if you leave the house say, without your phone, I think there's a, there's a limit, there's a line, there's an imaginary line that you cross over and it's like, do I go back mm. yeah. or do I proceed? Yeah. Mm. And because I think I did even – like I went back today, I did a goodbye and then went – it was a good goodbye. I was happy with my goodbye. <laughs> And then left my keys. Oh no! Yeah. Oh, I just I'm just gonna get it. Yeah, and so <laughs> and people do it in this studio. And who cares? Yeah. Mm. But people always, you know, it's do you pretend you're not there or do you double down on the goodbye? Me again. Oh. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, Duffer, I'm always doing this. <laughs> yeah, I, I reckon I'd point it out. You'd point it out. I think so. 
Because it's weird. They'll be like, oh, you're back. And then you like just scurry off and don't say anything. Yeah, that's yeah, that'd be a little bit weird, I guess. Yeah. There are some scurriers here. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. That's, 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 no, no, but I, but they're, they're trying to be polite and get out of our way. Yeah. Yeah. Never do that. Always no, no. barge in exactly. studio when Hang we're on, on air. Yeah, please do. Mm. It's nice to have people come to your rescue if you forget something, like someone oh, yeah. lending you a charger or whatever. Mm. I was um, DJing at the Gasso once and, um, and realised that I hadn't got one of those adapters for my headphones oh no i don't think i'd even brought my headphones i think i just completely forgotten to and you have to byo and obviously djing every i was like oh can i go to that office works which is across the road but it was closed and then i was panicking and i didn't know what to do and so i thought i'll go to triple r and i'll borrow headphones from one of the studios um and i came in it was a saturday night in emerald who does tomorrow never knows was here and she had a spare pair in her bag and she's like just take mine no worries great and it was so calm about it oh that's good and um it was so nice and i was like oh because because i got here and all the all the headphones are kind of like connected yeah they're all like strapped in yeah so that you don't steal them yeah and i was just going to borrow them um but so if that she hadn't been here to to lend me just this random pair she had in her bag and i don't want to have done that's right did you give them back or you still got them no, I sold them on the black market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stuff her. Yeah, but paying the, paying the tax when someone pays the tax, Emerald paid them on tax. Yes, which mm. is a rare tax. It's a rare tax, exactly. Yeah, but she paid it's, a, it. it's more of a levy. Yeah, <laughs> it's more of a event driven levy. Yeah, but people are happy to pay Mon's levy. Yes. Yeah, mm. but I think yeah, the Daniel tax can grind you down, <laughs> <laughs> and your charity kind of. Gives way to resentment. Yeah. Yeah, and then hostility. (laughs) (laughs) Triple R. Johnny Hawkins is a writer and actor whose TV and film appearances include Mr. In Between, The Other Guy, The ABC's Riot, and the upcoming Netflix comedy God's Favourite Idiot. Trained at the acclaimed Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, Johnny is a recipient of the Burton Award for Outstanding Shakespearean Performance, winner of the Sydney Theatre Awards Best Newcomer, and is in Melbourne now for Rising. And, uh, Which is the biggest prize of them all. Exactly. Uh, you notice the rule of threes broken there with a change of category. Uh, and Johnny transforms into Maureen, Harbinger of Death on Now, the Malt House, and to tell us about the theatre maker and DJ joins us now. Johnny, welcome to Breakfasters. Welcome. Thank you what so much for having me. Uh, what are you, how have you, uh, you and Maureen were friends, um, and I know... I don't want to speak in shorthand because we've seen the show and we want to bring people along with us. Mm. But is, is Maureen with you every day now or are you dealing with a, a creation that's sort of separate from Maureen? Uh, in terms of like getting around day to day, do I have a little Maureen sitting yeah, in my yeah. head? <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's something. So uh, in the show I play this uh, woman who was a really dear friend of mine called Maureen and she's got a really specific way of speaking and she's got um, certain mannerisms and things that I try to emulate in the performance. And so as I'm getting around her, as I'm talking to people after I've been performing as her for a bit, she tends to slip in. Yeah, right. And so something good will happen. I go, oh, that's great! <laughs> and then sort of forget that that's not how I normally talk. I go, oh, you're winning! <laughs> uh, it was interesting. I heard you mention that with Maureen and Jenny Little acquaintances... Yeah, yeah. Um, Jeannie and, and Moores, they like came up together through King's Cross in the 70s and um, were just the fabulous friends and they were this kind of um, 
wild duo and because Jeannie Little's still oh last check oh dear I don't Jeannie Little's still with us no uh, <laughs> so um, but I remember Maureen saying of Jeannie that as she started to develop dementia she remembered when Jeannie didn't remember Maureen anymore right. but she also remembers when Jeannie didn't remember herself anymore mm. and so that was watching an elderly friend of mine uh, watch their friends in the states of decline. Mm. That sort of became this idea of like, I can't imagine how difficult that stage of life is or is going to be. And so um, I guess that's where the show got its kernels from. I mean, mm. That's that's what I want to write about. Yeah. It's, Maureen appears to fit into a category of person where there are legions of people who are more charming, more interesting and more fun than people who are paid to be charming, interesting and fun. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think um, when someone's been invisible for a little bit and they've realised that they can live life by their own terms, they find all this chutzpah or the stuff that is really them. And so you go, oh, you're dealing with someone's soul and when someone's sitting in their soul and has given themselves permission to do anything you can't tell what's going to happen next. And so they're infinitely more fun. Mm. As someone who's a, a propagated sense of, I'm a fun person, you go, all right, prove it. <laughs> yeah. Prove it, bucko. <laughs> <laughs> Did you always want to create a show like this or was it once you met Maureen you thought, okay, I have to let the world see this person? When I met Maureen, I couldn't stop talking about her and I remember sitting at dinner tables and telling these wild stories that we had together, not even her stories that she told me, stories that I witnessed, that I was there for. And she just held conversation and when she wasn't there and I thought, oh, well, that's something interesting. I wonder if I can bring this into another world. So I spoke to her about it and I didn't quite know what the show was going to be at the time. Um, but I said, I want to, I want to make a show and you're a character in it. And she went, oh, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> That'll sell out stadiums. Um, so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite know what it was going to be. And then I started working with my uh, collaborator, Nell Rennie. And we had this, the original idea. Do you want to hear the original yes, idea for oh, the show? Yeah. The original idea for the show was a nursing home with eight vigilante elderly women escape and it's a surrealist nursing home and they escape it and in doing so change the world. And it was this wild hoot and we had this like amazing cast lined up and here were all these characters and um, then obviously that was never going to happen. We're never going to have a budget for for it and how you do it on a stage is just, maybe that's the next project. Yeah, I reckon. So Maureen was just one of these characters and then um, over the course of our relationship and with things that happened in life, she really became the focus and I said, actually, I want to cut out all of the um, wild lampooning and I want to cut out all of this and I want it to be a really tenderly felt story about a young gay person and their relationship with elderly women. Mm -hmm. What about uh, creating a space for tolerate, not tolerating, but like celebrating even creative mavericks, eccentrics, oddballs, misfits, like of which, you know, I count my friends as them. (laughs) This is not a disparaging uh, category. Um, Where is this going? I just want to know, like I want more... Maureen's in my life, yeah. and so where can I find them? 
Um, and and, and do you think we are nurturing Maureen's? No, I don't think we're nurturing Maureen's. I don't think we're nurturing eccentrics in general. I think the last couple of years has taught us that people are really going into their own corners. And I think that um, the way that we socialise is to find as many people that are like us to be comfortable um, without fostering a sense of going to the other. And so I think that these maverick eccentrics are actually sort of being squished out in life a bit. And I feel like there's a lot less character in the world. Mm. And so I want to celebrate that to show, um, hopefully so that people get inspired by their own sense of, I can do anything I want mm. because I really believe that. I don't mm. think that... I don't think that someone is actually particularly weird. I think that they've just chosen to be okay with the things that make them otherly and developed in that sense in the world. Yeah. Talking about the, sh- the show itself, there there basically is no fourth wall. You know, you, you talk directly to the audience, you encourage participation, even a few people get called up to help you with things. Yeah. Um, why is that something that you think works so well with this character? So... I met her in the context of her living room and um, I wanted – there was there was two reasons for it. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to perform it in drag and it's not a drag character because I really didn't think that it would be appropriate for me to take the role of what should be an older woman if that was the case. But in this show um, it's all about everyone imagining together. So I asked the audience to help build her essentially. So you watch me put on a couple of bits of jewellery and some lipstick and then my face is unchanged, my body is just sitting there. And so in that sense, what theatre can do better than what film can do is enable a big group of people to imagine the same thing at the same time. Everyone is pretending that it's going on. And so by speaking directly to the audience, I'm kind of inviting them to perform in the show with me in a very gentle way. I think audience participation makes people's sphincters close over for a week. (laughs) But um, it's literally just little tasks to help her and that um, endears them to the show. So uh, if everyone's collectively imagining what's going on, it's better. So I speak directly to you so that we're all in the same room Mm. and it must be present. Everyone must really feel like you're visiting her for a cup of tea. And so in this sense, the audience is playing me when I met her and I'm playing her in the absence Mm. of her. And I'm not, um, it's not an outward projection of her or trying to create a facsimile, but you're endowing her with all of your things. So it's more like reading a book than it is watching hmm. a show at times because you'd be like you sit in your own emotional world while you watch it. I think. I've mm. never seen it. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Uh, now, the title is so ironic. I don't know if that's the right word. Just, Maureen's not actually a harbinger of death. It's a joke. Yeah. Uh, w- what about the reception that people have? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a funny show, but it's touching. It's in an arts festival, but she's got the temperament of a stand-up. Where, is that kind of ambiguity alluring or is that, uh, you know, how should people approach the show? How, how would you approach the show if you were uh, to, uh, to observe it? 
yeah, just turn up. Yeah. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. it. <laughs> but, like, have fun. Like, just, but just, like, chill out, have fun. Like, chill don't out, be have uptight. Fun. Yeah, it's, um, it's probably the most, like, relaxed show that you could see. It's I, I find stand-up comedians quite overwhelming. Mm. And I, I also find a lot of theatre really boring. So I made a show that was kind of both. <laughs> I was like, oh, whoopee days. And then I don't even move while I'm on the stage. So I think I, – I, I actually, I think that we did a – I think that we did ourselves a mischief. I think that the show looks a lot sadder than it is because it's quite – Well, it's got death in the title as well. It's got death in the title. Um, and then it's like this picture of me on all this black material. You'd be like, I don't want to go see that turgid dirge. <laughs> but it's not that. And, uh, but it's a bit, it's a bit punk or something. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's irreverent. Um, but it's called that because this woman made a list of all of her friends in the order in which they would die. And so that's something the real Maureen did. Well, uh, she made a, she made a list, but not in the order that people would die. And she had a, she had a wealthy um, friend. Who essentially everyone was always worried about what Maureen was going to do for money. Everyone was like, "Oh, Maureen, like you'd live this life," and she was always at David Jones and like, but she just didn't care because she didn't have anyone to pass a debt on to. So anyway, friends would die and constantly keep giving her money to like, please buy the apartment that you live in. And she never did. She'd always just go travelling. And so she'd go and see – she she did spend her last decade travelling to see everyone that she needed to before they died because she was like, we're getting kind of close. We're at that age now. Yeah. Um, when the real Maureen died, she had a $30,000 credit card debt. <gasps> and as they were cleaning up the house – we uh, kept finding presents, that, like Christmas presents that she'd bought for people all year round and hidden in couches. She'd hidden presents everywhere. <laughs> from herself or f- from visitors? From or? visitors. So she had this tiny apartment and she just spent the whole year buying Christmas presents because she loved it so much. Yeah, right. And she and I, we used to go to... Um, she used to go to David Jones and make these <laughs> Christmas hampers for the homeless people in King's Cross. Aww. But they always included like caviar <laughs> and stuff. And so she'd go to the underpass and drop off this little hamper of uh, Christmas gifts. <laughs> and one time a can of caviar got lobbed at the guy that she was taking with. They're like, get me something better than this shit. <laughs> um, just, she thought everyone should live fabulously. Yeah. And I tend to agree. No, I think so too. Did you ever pay off the debt or is that why you have to tour the show forever yeah. until you take it on? Yeah. <sighs> Maureen, Harbinger of Death is on at the Mold House as part of Rising. It's on now until Sunday, the 12th of June for information tickets. Please go to rising.melbourne, uh, the play as we say. Play? Yeah. Maureen, Harbinger of Death, and we've been fortunate to speak with co-creator, writer, actor, Johnny Hawkins. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the Triple R website. <laughs> 